0: It will hopefully be summer soon, Lord willing, and a time for many to go to the beach. Uh, personally, I don't love the beach. Uh, i kind of fair-skinned, so I turn red, and then I turn back to pale, and kind of back and forth. I'm not a great swimmer, so I've never just loved it. But My wife does love it, so we do go to the beach. And so when I'm there, I often you know, sort of distract myself in a variety of ways, and one of those is by kind of observing the houses near the beach. There's all sorts of little homes built there, depending on which beach you're at. Sometimes really small, almost sort of cabin, you know, simple by the water. At other times, as you've seen, just spectacular mansions also by the ocean. But with the storms of New England, sometimes a nor'easter in the winter, tropical storm or hurricane in the summer, it can be a dangerous place to have a house. The wind, the rain, sometimes even the waves can do great damage. When we think about the houses, though, the small and the large ones, the greatest danger to the house isn't if the roof is blown off. That can be replaced. It's not even if a wall is knocked down. That can be rebuilt. But the greatest danger to the existence of the house is if the soil, the ground, The sand that it's built upon is eroded away, and then the foundation of the house fails. Other things can be repaired, rebuilt, but if the foundation goes, it's a disaster. The house collapses. And if you follow the news, almost every year there'll be, you know, a a story about a house down on the Cape or, or on the South Shore that's undergoing just that. It's just teetering on the edge of existence because the soil has been eroded from storm after storm, and then sadly, often, some of those houses do collapse. So the most important part of a house for its survival, its stability, is the foundation. What is the house built upon? And the same is true of a life. We all need a a foundation that our lives are built upon that is strong enough, substantial enough, sturdy enough to endure the storms of this life that we all know that we face, and strong enough, substantial enough to, to take us even beyond this life into the life eternal. And this morning, we'll, we'll hear Jesus' words on this as he tells us how to build a house, a life that will truly last so if you have a Bible, turn to me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 will begin in verse 15. And the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 812. Page 812. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you today. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. Uh, so today we're in chapter 7. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So we'll begin in verse 15. I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we would love the church to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table with some, book, some Bibles there, a sign that says free. Just take one of those, please, as our gift to you this morning. So today we pick up the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Watch out for those who lead astray. And build your life on the words of Jesus. Watch out for those who lead astray and build your life on the words of Jesus. And this morning in our passage, we'll see three dangers that Jesus has for us. First, the danger of false teachers. Second, the danger of self deception. And then third, the danger of unwise building. We'll spend more of our time on the first. So first, we see the danger of false teachers in verses 15 through 20. Today, we finally come to the final portion of what we've called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. This uh, very important sermon of Jesus. Jesus, the king, has come announcing that because he has come, his kingdom is breaking in. And in this sermon, he's been describing what life in his kingdom is to look like. Not a life lived to earn a place in his kingdom, but those who trust in the king by faith, in his saving work and grace, that then changes how we live. And Jesus says, this is what that life looks like in his kingdom. Ends this morning in verse 15 with beware or watch out. And by this, Jesus intends a very real strong warning. Be like, if you were on one of those beaches on the Cape this summer and you see a sign that says danger sharks, that's not just, you know, a sign they put up for no reason. They put it there because there are real sharks. There's a real danger, so stay on the beach, is what they're saying. Look at the houses like I do. Don't go in the water because there are sharks that are real dangers. And here Jesus is not just sort of broadly warning, he's saying, beware, be alert. There's a very real danger. But what is the danger? It's what Jesus calls false prophets. I think when many of us think of prophets today, we think of primarily those who foretell what's going to happen in the future. Now the biblical category of prophet did include some of that. That God would enable them, speak through them what was going to happen But even more of their work, the primary part of their work was not simply foretelling the future, but, but telling God's word to God's people that they might honor him in their life in this world. So the category of people that Jesus has in mind, these prophets or teachers that are false, would be those who are claiming to teach God's word authoritatively. And Jesus says, beware, there are false prophets, there are false teachers. Now, this was not a new danger. We see false prophets across the Old Testament. Basically, every time there were prophets of God, there were always false prophets. It continues during the life and ministry of Jesus. It continues after Jesus' ascension in the New Testament. We see every local church mentioned in the New Testament facing false teachings that are coming in, and it continues today, and it will continue until the last day. And notice how Jesus describes how these false teachers come. Verse 15, he says, They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus wants us to understand, to be clear, false teachers don't show up and announce themselves and say, I'm a false teacher here to lead you astray. Instead, they enter into the flock looking like just another sheep. They enter into the flock looking safe and trustworthy because they look like us. They talk like us. And so we let down our guard. So they try to gain access to the flock that they might lead some astray. Now, wolves are always dangerous to sheep. So the part of a shepherd of any flock of sheep would be to always be on the lookout for dangers like wolves. And if a shepherd was with a flock in a field and it was a wolf that was 200 yards away, that would be a very real danger. He would need to to keep an eye on that to try to protect the sheep. But an even greater danger than a wolf at 200 yards would be a wolf inside the flock who, because he had dressed up like a sheep, he's been able to slip in and he's right in the midst of the flock. And there he could cause great destruction. And Jesus says, you have to be alert because there will always be false teachers who will be trying to slip in undetected. And the most dangerous ones are the ones who sound most like us. Who will use the same words. Who will use the Bible. Who will hold to or say they hold to many historic traditions of the church. That's when they're dangerous. The more dangerous false teachers are not be those whose views are very different from ours. So this week, my wife, Brandy, was uh, taking an Uber, and she was writing uh, that the driver was a part of what we would consider a cult, a, a non-Christian group. They don't consider themselves to be Christian. They don't share any of the same beliefs. And so this woman was openly sharing you know, her beliefs with my wife, trying to convince her of it. She gave her a little booklet trying to persuade. But if you open up the booklet, it's very, very different beliefs, not close at all to Christianity, which that's why beliefs like that are, are rarely, not never, but, but are rarely tempting to lead Christians astray, the more dangerous ones that are the ones that sound very similar. Those teachers who use a lot of the Bible, those are the ones who often are able to access the flock and lead people astray. Now, fortunately, Jesus not only warns us, but he tells us how to recognize them. How do we know what a false teacher is? And he tells us, verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Jesus asked the question, do do you gather grapes from thorn bushes? Do you gather figs from thistles? And the answer is, of course, no, you don't. He goes on to remind us that, that good trees bear good fruit, diseased trees bear bad fruit. We should see that Jesus is saying that there is an objective standard by which he and we distinguish true from false. He's saying there is such a thing as a false teacher... And there are also some that are true teachers, which actually is surprisingly controversial today. To say that there actually is something called true. There is something called truth. But that's what Jesus is saying here. So if we're to be alert, cautious, where do we look to see their fruit? One fruit that we watch is what the teacher teaches what comes out of their mouths, if they're a writer, what do they write? Jesus speaks of this later in Matthew 12 as well, that that what comes out of us displays what's really inside of us. And as I mentioned, the most dangerous false teachers, as they teach us initially, they will use much of the Bible and there will be some truth, but always also mixed with error. And the false teachers in America, at least, who who seem to gain much popularity are, are often excellent communicators. They're almost always warm and winsome in their delivery, very optimistic. And usually, you know, tremendously handsome or beautiful, just really attractive looking people. Now, there's certainly some who aren't so warm and winsome who also gain a following, who are, who are very authoritative and strong in their preaching. That turns off some, but there are some who just really want to be led in that way. And most false teachers both take away from God's Word in some areas and add to it in others. They take away from the gospel and they add additional requirements to it. Now, what these false teachers will often do is they'll take a small portion of the Scriptures And they'll teach what they want to say, but if you looked closely, what they're saying is actually not connected typically at all to what the Scripture says. Or they take the Scripture out of context, out of relationship to all that's around it in the Bible. They pull it out of context and make the text say what they want it to say. For instance, a false teacher also rarely would teach hard things. A really popular false teacher is not going to teach what we'd say difficult things, but always positive, always optimistic. And so a false teacher very likely would teach some of the Sermon on the Mount that we've seen from chapters 5 through 7. So for instance, many false teachers would take just from the same chapter, from chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. It's this beautiful teaching of us asking God in prayer. We have a faithful father who gives good gifts to his children, And even verse 12, the the golden rule. Many would teach that. But almost no false teacher would teach what we continued to last week, verse 13 and 14, where Jesus says, there is a wide way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow gate. Enter in through the narrow gate. Almost no false teacher will teach that. So it's this sort of selective use of the Scriptures Now, I'm not saying that in order to be faithful, someone has to always preach through books of the Bible. That's typically what we do here at Hope. You don't have to do that. But I would say, if you watch someone who's a false teacher, they're almost always going to move around and never teach hard texts or controversial texts. They'll always find a way, something that will be positive to fit their vision of what they want to communicate. What we've seen is that Jesus does give us these hard teachings. Last week he said, on the one hand, enter in through the narrow way. But there's also a wide way that that many are on that leads to destruction. We've seen in the sermon that Jesus says that his kingdom brings real transformation to life. And it impacts our ability, enabling us to fight sin. That that we don't embrace every desire that we have. He he calls us to a countercultural view of money and sex and relationships and anxiety and the world. But a false teacher will typically come and encourage you, embrace whatever it is you want to do. Whatever you feel like doing, that's what God wants you to do. Is what often you're here. The challenge is that most false teachers, that false teaching won't show up in every single sermon. It won't be found in every single paragraph of the book, and so we can begin to trust this teacher, this author and accept some of the things that are sort of scattered in their teaching. So we want to watch the fruit of their teaching. But we also want to watch for the fruit of their life and of their ministry. Now in this, we're not looking for perfection in the life of a teacher or a pastor, but we should look for evident godliness. We we should expect that in a, a pastor, an elder, progress is being made. So we should ask, in this person's life, are we seeing some of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is there fruit of a life that that evidently understands that he's a sinner in need of grace and regularly repenting? Author D.A. Carson says it this way, The fruit the Lord Jesus looks for is a life in growing conformity to the norms of the kingdom. Righteousness, transparent humility, purity, trusting and persistent prayerfulness, obedience to Jesus' words, truthfulness, love, generosity, rejection of all that is hypocritical. Now this fruit often takes time, it's rarely immediately obvious, and it typically requires some proximity to the person in order to be able to see it. But sadly, it's possible for a person's teaching to be faithful and true, but their life has fruit that contradicts the message. So they could be false in the way that they're relating to others. Usually, though, in time, both life and teaching end up in alignment, but not always. That's one of the challenges of a more public ministry. There are public ministries that are kind of unique because of the world we live in now with, with media. It's possible for someone to have a massive ministry. And some of those are tremendously helpful and I'm grateful for personally. And so there can be a person that, that you love to read her books or listen to his podcast. And there may be what seems to be good fruit in their teaching, but it's almost impossible for us to know the fruit of their lives because they may be in a different state or on a different continent and we always want to be mindful that the measure of truthfulness, faithfulness, is not on the size of the crowd or the popularity of the teacher. So sometimes someone who's a very wonderful and faithful teacher ends up with a very large following. That's great, that's wonderful. But someone who can also have a very large following, be very popular who's very unfaithful or destructive on a local level. so Apparent success can't be the measurement. But on the other hand, we wouldn't say small is a guarantee of faithful. You can have a very small ministry, that doesn't mean we're necessarily being faithful either. So there's not sort of one measurement that we use. There's another element that we also need to be aware of, and that is that the danger when it comes to false teachers is not only out there, but it's also in here, in us. Because you'd want to ask, what is it that makes us prone to follow these false teachers? What is it that makes us willing to grab hold of these teachings that are contrary to God's word? We see this repeatedly happening in the Old Testament where the true prophets would come with almost always the same message. They were calling God's people to repent of their rampant sin. So calling them, turn back to God, the prophet would say. Won't you turn back to your faithful God and then usually eventually a warning, if you don't, there will be an invading army that will come and be used as God's hand to lead you to repentance. But then false teachers would come along and say, everything is fine. You're fine. God is with us. God is for us. He will protect us from the invader. He will keep you safe. Now, which of those do you think was more popular? repent or we'll be attacked, things are great. God is on your side. And so the false teachers were attracted because that's what people wanted to hear. They didn't want to be called to repentance. They didn't want to be told, we're about to be invaded. And so there was something in them that wanted to believe what the false prophets said. And the same continues. So often the, the prophet, those false teachers that gain traction in our society are teaching in line with the sort of popular winds of the culture. And they often affirm what we want for ourselves and often what we want for others. I mean, so many of us, we we want to be accepted. We don't want to be outliers in our society. We don't want to be thought of as narrow-minded. So they craft a teaching that says, look, don't worry. No matter what anyone believes, everyone will be saved. Contrary to what Jesus said last week, There's a wide way that leads to destruction. But there is a narrow way available. But it's an attractive teaching to so many that all will be saved. Few of us want to suffer in this life. We would much prefer a life of comfort and prosperity. So a teacher comes along and says, what God has for you, what he promises to you is prosperity in this life, success. You will certainly climb the ladder. You'll have one of those mansions by the beach. It's attractive to us. Because we'd like to have that life. People want to embrace all the desires that we have. We we don't want to have any kind of restraint. So when a teacher comes along and says, most of all, embrace your true self. Be the one that you feel like being. That's truly being you. We also tend to like new things. So if a teacher comes along and says, I have a new teaching for you. Finally, someone has the true teaching. We're attracted to that. Or sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll have an old thing that's new. They'll say, I've discovered some old teachings that people have lost sight of, and now it's here, and this is new. So friends, we have to be alert. There's something inside of us that makes us prone to be led astray. We also can see the fruit of this on a broader scale in our own city, This fruit didn't display itself except for decades. But historically, the churches in Boston have had a huge role in Christianity in America. Some of the greatest churches, the greatest preachers in the history of our country ministered here for decades faithfully proclaiming the gospel. But sadly, in time, false teaching crept in. Churches and pastors wandered from the gospel. So as you know, if you walk around Boston now, you'll come across sometimes beautiful buildings that clearly at one time were a church, but now it's condominiums. Because at some point, the church wandered from the gospel. The church folds. And still today, there's some massive churches filled with a handful of people The church once proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has an endowment now funded by those people who love Jesus. And yet many you can go to today and you'll hear anything but Jesus. You will not hear Jesus and his gospel there. It's the evident fruit over time of these false teachings that come in and lead people astray. On the one hand, this sounds like only bad news, only warning. But friends, there is good news. Because our hope is in the ultimate teacher, the perfect prophet, Jesus Christ, God the Son. He's the lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. He was killed by false teachers, by wolves, so that through his death and resurrection, he would provide salvation for us. He's the chief shepherd who came to rescue wandering sheep like us, the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And now we have his word to guide us and the very spirit of God in us to empower us to make progress. So we do have to be alert, but we don't have to fear. We can be secure because the shepherd, he will keep his sheep to the end. But what can we do in order to beware, to be on guard? Friends, first, we always want to be Christians who have open Bibles. Be a Christian who always has the scriptures open. And if you're listening to someone like me preach, you should not just sort of close the Bible and listen. Now, if you're a member of a church, you've been there for a while, there there is a higher level of trust. But you still, even if you trust, should always be verifying. You shouldn't just take my word for it because I'm standing up here saying it. You should be looking at the Bible to say, is he saying what's there? Is what he's saying in the Bible here? So be a people who love the Scriptures, open the Scriptures, look to the Scriptures, and are seeking to grow in our understanding of the Scriptures day by day. We want to be alert. We want to be careful. But friends, we also want to be careful that we're not cynical. Some Christians, in seeking to beware, become so cynical and so critical that they call everything false except this tiny little group. That's not what God's people are to be. So we want to be gracious and generous wherever we can be. Not angry and embittered falsehood seekers, but also alert and careful as well. So live with your Bible open. But also, friend, let me encourage you, be a part of a local church where there is accountability from and for pastors and elders. I mean, which sheep is at more danger, the one who's in the flock or the one going it alone? So it is. So often people, as they're going it alone, apart from any care there, they're more prone to wander. And by being a part of a local flock, there should be accountability. So, for instance, in our church, the final authority of the church is not the pastor, it's not the elders, but it's the members. And so the members have the authority that they should watch what I teach. If I begin to wander from the truth, it's your job as members to hold me accountable. That's what we have committed to do together. So, friend, if you're a member, take the role of church membership seriously. If you remember just last month, Mike joined us as an associate pastor. And so as an elder, he stood up here on the stage and he took some vows. Some things he committed to us. Some things he affirmed about what he believes and that he holds to the same things that we hold to. And then we as a church took vows to him. So the call for Mike is stay the course. Be faithful to the teaching. And then our job is to love and affirm him, but also hold him accountable if he wanders from that. So that's what we do together in the life of the church. We can also be thankful and cautious when it comes to resources in our world. We really do live in a unique time in history where because of technology, we can access so many Christian resources. And many of them are so helpful and good I mean, when, when we first started the church, you know, 18 years ago, as I was trying to learn from others, what I would have to do is like, you know, order cassettes. And they would mail me these cassettes. If you're not sure what a cassette is, you could Google them or, you know, go to a museum and, and see them. But, but take the cassette, you know, play it, turn it over, play it, turn it over. So I, piles and piles of cassettes was the only way. But now, as you know, books, you can order them. I mean, it's incredible. I can order a book and get it the same day or an electronic version of it. Or or podcasts and sermons, and and believe me, I love all those things. I have way too many books, and I'm still buying more. And I love to listen to sermons. I listen to many of them. So we can be grateful, but we also have to be cautious. Because sadly, often the books that are the most popular, quote-unquote Christian books, often aren't so helpful or truthful. And sometimes the most popular podcasts aren't so wise or careful. So let's be thankful. What a world we live in today. But also cautious. That's one of the reasons we have a book table up here. One, because there's really not Christian bookstores in Boston. But to say, here are some books that we would affirm. They're not perfect. We think these are are good and wise and helpful books. So let's be cautious, even as we're thankful for the resources in the world. So we see the danger of false teachers. Then second, we see the danger of self-deception. Look at verse 21 to 23. Jesus turns his attention to to the last day when, when the kingdom comes in full and look at his warning, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He expands upon this, verse 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here we see this daunting reality that there are some who think they're going to enter in. They're saying to Jesus, Lord, Lord, and he's saying, I don't know you. They're saying, look, we've done all these things. We've we've prophesied in your name. We've taught in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done mighty works in your name. And notice Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. But he does say, you don't know me. You did some activities. You did some actions. You said you were doing them in my name, but you don't know me. So they think they can be admitted into heaven, into life with Jesus because of what they had done. And notice, in particular, these are outward and more spectacular. It wasn't that grace was evident in them. It wasn't that they cared for the least. It was they did these very visible outward actions. They never said, it's because I've trusted in Jesus, but it is what I have done in the name of Jesus. So who can enter, verse 21, Jesus says, the one who does the will of the Father. And what is the Father's will? It is that any and all people would understand our need of salvation. that would understand I'm a sinner in need of grace. And the will of fathers that I would understand that and I would turn to Christ by faith. I would repent of living in rebellion against God. I would turn to Christ. I would receive this free gift of salvation, a gift. And then I would live a life seeking to follow Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to live in obedience, marked by regular, faithful, ready repentance. So we're saved by the grace and power of Jesus Christ alone. And we're empowered to to live a life of increasing obedience by this grace and power. Now, a verse like this should lead us to self-examination. So we would want to ask of ourselves, am I trusting in Jesus Christ and his perfect work alone? Or am I trusting in what I have done? Am I trusting in some Christian activities, ministry that I've done? So this is especially a warning for those involved in ministry activities, and especially those involved in public ministry activities like myself and other pastors and elders. Now for some of you who have a more tender conscience, this, this sort of thing can be really challenging and could lead to, lead to fears and, and doubts that, that are not intended by this text. Author Jonathan Pennington helpfully says this, This is not given to cause morbid introspection or undue self-doubt for the believer, but rather to exhort one not to be enamored with external gifts and powers and behaviors without paying attention to the soul and the heart. That's what we've seen across this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going at the heart, not simply our outward behaviors, not simply our ministry actions, but what is going on in the heart. Are we trusting in Christ? So we see the danger of self-deception and then third and finally, we see the danger of unwise building, verses 24 to the end. Jesus paints this picture of two very different ways of building. Two men build houses. But they build them on two very different foundations. One builds on the rock, one builds on the sand. And we see that both of the houses endure. Rain falls. The winds blow. They beat upon the house. So they both face this great storm, but then we see two very different results. One, house stands firm. It does not fall because it's founded on the rock. The other falls. as a great fall. So the viability of the house is determined by its foundation. What was the house built upon? And Jesus explains it, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Who built his house on the rock. What's the alternative? Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So two ways. The wise and the foolish. Both of them heard the words of Jesus. But only one did them. Now if we think about what Jesus is really saying here, this is an audacious and authoritative claim that Jesus is making here. Notice he says that they need to do his words. And others who are listening to Jesus are noticing the authoritative nature of his teaching. Look down at verse 28. It says, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he is teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So in that day, many are thinking of Jesus as another rabbi, like the other rabbis. He's teaching like them. But but most rabbis, most scribes spent most of their teaching quoting other rabbis. This rabbi says this, this one says that, and almost no sort of authoritative nature to what they're teaching. And so Jesus comes, and he looks a lot like a rabbi in the way he's teaching and acting. But notice, we've seen it across this entire sermon. Jesus is saying things like, but I say to you. He doesn't quote another rabbi. He says, I say to you this. He described himself today in our text that he's the one saying to people, I never knew you. He's the one there, turning people away or inviting people in. And here he's the one saying, if you hear my words and do my words. Notice he didn't say, if you hear God's words. Jesus is clearly equating himself as he is divine. He's God. He's the very son of God. Jesus eliminates the option that so many of us want to take in our society that says Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. The claims Jesus makes simply in our text alone make clear Jesus does not see himself as simply a teacher but he is God the Son who has come near. He's the king. That's why he talks in this authoritative way. So we see two lives, two houses. One stands, one collapses. We should notice that Jesus does not make the promise, if you hear my words and do them, you will not face any storms in this life. That's not what he says. Both face storms, great storms in this life. So the promise is not a storm-free life, but it is a life that can endure the storm, that can still be standing through a life of storms and most importantly, beyond for the life to come. So friend, the question for each of us is, Will the house of your life hold up the storms of this life? For we all know as we live, we will face storms, great storms at times. And then we face the future reality of facing Jesus. Will the life that we have lived, what we are trusting in the foundation, hold up? So Jesus says we must hear his words, but hearing his words alone is not sufficient. A person could come here every single week, listen to sermons, even, you know, critique the sermons, think well about the sermons, compliment the sermons. That's a good start, but that's not sufficient," Jesus says. We have to hear the words and do them. Do what God's word says. So hearing is good, but not sufficient. So we hear the words of Jesus, enter into the narrow way. We face the question, will we respond and trust in Him? And then from this salvation flows the power and desire to obey Jesus' teachings. Friends, our obedience does not secure our salvation. That's by the grace of God alone. But our obedience does display the authenticity of our salvation. If I've truly been saved, there will be, there should be, there must be some obedience that flows from this salvation. So, friend, if you've not yet received Christ, maybe you've heard the words of Jesus today or many times, let me urge you today, turn to Christ today by faith. Receive this free gift. And, friend, if you are a Christian, are you diligently seeking to obey Jesus' teachings? What we've seen in this beautiful Sermon on the Mount, are are you seeking to put this into practice? And are we seeking to obey all of Jesus' words or only selectively. If I only obey Jesus where I already agree with him, it's not obedience to him as Lord. I'm just agreeing with someone who's already affirming my existing beliefs. But friend, what about when Jesus' words, the teachings of Scripture, are counter to what you currently believe or what you're currently doing or what you currently prefer? What about when the teachings of Jesus are confronting some current activity in your life? Do you obey then? And if not, I think you should consider, is he really king? Is he really Lord? We want to build a life that will last, that will hold up to the storms of this life, that will be secure on the last day. That's found by trusting in, obeying Jesus. So we've seen this sermon from 5 through 7. Jesus portrays this, and notice he's concluding this by a call to us to say, build your life on this. What you've seen across Matthew 5, 6, and 7, trust in this, hear this, and do it, Jesus says. Trust in him as king and embrace his kingdom rule. As we've seen, following Jesus is different. We can live secure in his kingdom. But Jesus calls us to this countercultural way We've seen in in the sermon how we're to think differently about money, differently about identity, about sex, about money and possessions, how we think about the God of the universe as Father. Friend, don't you want to embrace this life that Jesus has for us? This is the life that's really worth living. This is the life that will hold up through the storms of life. This is the life that, that leads into life eternal. So we've heard his words Now let's trust his power and seek to do them together. Through that we'll know life and God will be glorified in us.